Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. Have you ever noticed that some people just don't want to hear the truth? Well, this was certainly the case as Jesus is put on trial in Luke 22, beginning in verse 33 through chapter 23, verse 5. Now, I hope you will subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, so you won't miss a thing. God bless you. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in verses 63 through 23, 5. And, you know, I always open up with some kind of illustration, and all week long I've been trying to figure out how to open up this one, and I realized it had been laid on my, in my lap all along. Kelly and I have just got back from an extended uh, time of travel on the road. We've been in town very infrequently for the last six, seven weeks or so. We appreciate your patience in dealing with that. We had a number of things we were doing for the Eastern District, for WBF. We had some personal stuff we were doing as well. Uh, but we got back into town Monday, eat late, and Tuesday I kind of jumped right back into my schedule. I'm down at Panera, and I was meeting a few people, and a guy walked up to the, to the table that I hadn't seen in quite some time. He used to go to church here. Sat down. He said, John, how are you doing? I said, doing fantastic. He said, um, I heard you were retiring. And I, I, pardon me? He said, I heard you were retiring. I said, where'd you hear that? He goes, oh, that proves it. You didn't say no. I said, I'm just wondering where you heard that. He said, oh, you know, it's just several people have told me. He mentioned one or two people, none of whom came to church here. And, and I thought, you know, and, and it didn't matter what I said after that initial inquiry. Because he was convinced. When he left, he said, well, I hope you find something to do that you enjoy as much as you did the ministry. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, wow. And oddly enough, that happened twice again last week from different people. And nobody said, hey, John, are you retiring? They said, I heard you were retiring. And every time I, I answer, I said, where'd you hear that? Well, you know, words out. Okay, and so, so what, what I discovered this week is some people just don't want to hear the truth. No matter how clear you state it, no matter what, some folks just don't want to hear the truth. They, they kind of hold on to half-truths and lies and rumors that they've heard, mostly because they agree with some preconception they had. And I don't have to tell you, the preconception that went along with that idea is that John's getting old. He must be thinking about retiring. And maybe a few people put two and two together. One hadn't been here for a while, and you know, he's getting old, and I'm surprised. I you know, don't find myself in a position that Mark Twain was in. The rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> so Luke's gospel is rife with people like this. They see the truth, they hear it, yet they refuse to believe the evidence of their own eyes and maybe the evidence of Scripture as well. Some of the most powerful lessons in Luke come right here in this period that we're in, near the end of Jesus' ministry. That's why we kind of slowed down as we got into these final days of Jesus' ministry on earth. So we just finished the series, talked about uh, the power of prayer and how prayer won't necessarily help you avoid the hard situations in life, but it will help you get through them. We saw the power of darkness, that the power of darkness can overwhelm you when it starts closing in, in particular if you don't know the end of the story. Now, as Christians, 
As believers in Christ, we know the end of the story. We don't know all the middle parts, amen? And sometimes life can come at us pretty fast and pretty hard. But we know the end of the story. We know that no matter what happens to us here and now, that we will be with Jesus Christ in glory at the end. We know the end of the story. We don't always embrace it the way we should, but that's okay, it's a human reaction. But we have been told the end of the story, and as believers, we believe it. We saw the powerless Peter. And what we learned from Peter is that sometimes you have to come to the end of yourself before you can fully live for Christ. So today's sermon, we, we move a step further. We're going to take a look at Jesus on trial. And just the beginning of it. Now, there are f- three phases of the portion of the trial that we're going to see today. We will see the charges levied against Jesus in 22.63 through 23.2. We will see the cross-examination of Jesus in 23.3. And we'll see the conclusion, the verdict, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 23. So let's take a look at these charges. We left Peter weeping bitterly over his denial of Christ. He he was told it was going to happen. He didn't believe it. So it's one of the prime examples of what we're talking about. He just couldn't imagine him doing this. And, And now the story shifts abruptly to what's happening to Jesus. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Now, they're... This is unimaginable. We know who Christ is. Amen? Son of God. The incarnation of God. God coming down in flesh to live among us and and redeem us, to save us. And these guys are making fun of Him. And they're ridiculing Him while they're beating Him. Now, this should have recalled to the Jews that were standing around Him an incredible passage of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. So when you, get, when you get home this afternoon, take a look at Isaiah 50 through 53 and compare that to what we're going to hear today. But here's what Isaiah 50 verse 6 says. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Then moving on to Isaiah 53, starting with verse 3, he was despised, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So much for the blue-eyed, smiling Jesus. Amen? A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Our passage in Luke reveals two important truths that we need to embrace this morning. This is the end of our Thanksgiving week. We have much to be thankful for. I kept on putting up on social media. We have so much to be thankful for. You'd be amazed at some of the responses I got. But here's two things that we learned from our passage in Luke. Number one, God knew exactly how his only son would be treated. That's what we saw in Isaiah. He knew what was going to happen. And it was part of his plan. Oh, this is so hard for us to imagine. 
that God would allow His Son to go through this. But it was part of God's plan. He described 700 years before what happened, what was going to happen when Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem on that week. Here's the second thing. Even though God knew, He still did it. He knew the suffering that was coming. He still did it. He still allowed His only Son to be tortured by the people that He created. Why would He do that? He did it because of His great love for you and me. It's an incredible act of love. We're unable to save ourselves because we're sinners. The penalty for sin is death. But God provided a way to live forever. He provided a way to be with Him through the suffering and the shed blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ, so that all those who confess Him can have eternal life and live with Him forever. He did it because of us. Put Himself through all of that pain and torture. God was willing to let His Son die so that you and I could live. And he was going to use his interrogators and the soldiers imprisoning him and all the people that are accusing him. He's going to use them to accomplish his plan. That's worthy of some thought, isn't it? How God can use evil to accomplish his good. It's hard for us to absorb. Verse 64 says, They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? This is mockery. They're making fun of Jesus. They don't expect him to prophesy. They're inferring that he's not even a prophet at all. So here's the first charge against him. He's a false prophet. The things he says are not true. Verse 65, And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, here's the second charge, and there's really multiple charges all wrapped up in it, but basically what they're saying is that the works he does comes from Satan. That's blasphemy, attributing God's works to Satan. Then in verse 66, When day came, the assembly of the elders and of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, we'll get to that in just a second, Because things are beginning to move fast right now. The trial is moving along very quickly. At daybreak, Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a governing body over Jerusalem. Lay leaders and priests, led by a high priest. They had administrative and judicial authority in Israel. But they still fell under the authority of the Roman governor. Still fell under the authority of Caesar. Some debate over exactly what's happening here. But Jesus is being examined and he's going to be judged by this council, this hastily improvised council of the Sanhedrin. Was it legal? Well, probably not. We really don't know all the details. We have some idea about how all this was supposed to function from the Mishnah, which was written in the third century going forward. But we don't really understand how everything functioned in the first century. Was this, was this council contrived? Did it have a lot of witnesses that were in favor of the Sanhedrin? Most likely. It was very early in the morning. They would have been doing this before the city started stirring. There would be no crowds assembled under the ones that they called. Whatever the members of the Sanhedrin did here, they were afraid. 
They were afraid that Jesus was going to cause trouble. And they were trying to trap him so that they could kill him. They've gone from being annoyed with him to being angry with him to hating him. Now they want to, they want to murder him. They don't want to do it themselves. They want someone else to do it. So they say in verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. Again, this is not a question. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They've just accused him of blasphemy. But but they they want him to admit that he's the Christ. And in truth, he's already told them. I mean, if, if they've been listening, if they know everything that's been going on, they should know some of the high marks of Jesus' ministry. And he's been telling them from the get-go who he was. In verse 2, chapter 11, angels proclaim that the baby born in Bethlehem is the Christ. In chapter 2, verse 26 of Luke, right in the temple, Simeon, the prophet, proclaims it. This is one I've been waiting for. In chapter 3, verse 15, people think John the Baptist is the Christ. And John the Baptist says, no, it's not me. There's one coming after me whose shoes I'm not fit to tie. And he's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 41, the demons proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. The enemy proclaims he's the Son of God. In chapter 9, verse 20, Peter confesses it. And Jesus says, that's the foundation, that confession that you just made is a foundation I'm going to build my church on, that he is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah. And in chapter 20, verse 41, Jesus says it in front of the Pharisees. So these are all things that the Sanhedrin would have heard about. They would have known these things. But here they are, trying Jesus, and they don't believe. They don't believe what they've seen. They don't believe what they've heard. They don't believe the evidence of their own eyes. They've seen him do miracles. They watched him do it. And every time he did a miracle in front of them, what did they say? Oh, you can't do that on Sunday. They don't believe. Jesus says as much. Second half of 67. But he said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. In saying, if, if I tell you, what he's really saying, if I say it again, you won't believe me. You didn't believe me the first time. Why do I think you believe me now? But then, at that point, I mean, we're near the end of Jesus' ministry. He, he raises the ratchet a few, few notches higher at this point. He said, in verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's a verse that we're familiar with. There's incredible strength here. The council has gathered to evaluate Jesus. They're really not there to evaluate him. They want to kill him. They're going to judge him. And Jesus turns the tables. He refers to Psalm 110. Go back and take a look at that later. And says, it's not you who's going to judge me. It is me who's going to judge you. And that just gets them angrier. That just makes them matter. And they conclude that Jesus is claiming to be some highly exalted authoritarian in their structure of theology. Verse 70, so they said, so are you the son of God then? Another insincere question. But the Jews know this if they can get him to claim to be the Son of God and to sit at the right hand of God, 
they know that Jesus would actually be claiming to be equal to God. And he said to them, you say that I am. It's very wily. He doesn't clearly acknowledge your query. He comes back with, well, those are your words. Verse 71, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. They haven't. They haven't heard anything from his own lips. But the third charge is blasphemy. And the great irony of everything that they said and everything that Jesus says is all true. It's not blasphemy. It's biblical scriptural truth coming from the mouth of God himself. Verse 23, chapter 23, 1 says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Now, you, you, we need to set the scene here so that you understand what's coming. They, they all go. The, the, the whole Sanhedrin is going to go over to Pilate's place, and there's going to be this show of strength. Look, we're all united. This is what we want. Okay? And meanwhile, they've got Jesus. Uh, and Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus is bound. So the, the leaders all show up at Pilate's house with Jesus bound and looking very much like a common criminal. He's beaten a little bit there too. And, and, and that's, when, that's when the finger pointing begins. They have to convince Pilate to execute Jesus. So they begin to lay things on extra heavy and make their case. And verse 2, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king? And of course, none of the accusations are true. This didn't pop up uh, earlier. But out of them rise our fourth charge against Jesus. He's a liar. He's been lying. So the Sanhedrin doesn't have the authority to execute a criminal. Rome doesn't give that to them. Only Romans have that power. So they take Jesus and all of their trumped up charges and he's a false prophet. He does the work of Satan. He's a blasphemer. He's a liar. Uh, none of which have been proven. And they take Jesus to a higher power. Now we hear that word bandied around a lot today. My higher power. And we're, and we're, we're always talking about somebody that has more authority, more power than ourselves. That's what the Sanhedrin's doing. And, and so Pilate is that higher power in the eyes of the Sanhedrin. And he begins to cross-examine Jesus. Now, Roman trials, had, there were two types of Roman trials. One was a full-fledged trial. And the other went in three stages and happened before one individual, one judge. The charges were presented in these abbreviated trials. This is what's going on here. And there was a thing called a cognitio examination, which were questions asked by the person in charge. And then the verdict is delivered by that person in charge, by the judge. Now, this is how Jesus' trial is being conducted here in Jerusalem. Uh, it's kind of like traffic court, the difference between a full-blown uh, trial where you've got a jury of uh, witnesses, a uh, jury of your peers, uh, the difference between that and traffic court where you go stand before the judge and try to convince him that you're not guilty, and he calls you guilty and makes the fine anyway. So the, 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 the idea is that in Pilate's case, the judge has the authority to execute the accused. So Pilate's function as a governor, we have to understand the situation here, was to collect taxes and maintain the peace, maintain the order. As long as he did that, 
He was pretty much left alone by Rome, by Caesar and his cohorts. But if there was trouble, Pilate could very easily be replaced, and probably when that happened, he would also be beheaded, hung, knife in the back, whatever. So looking at things from Pilate's perspective, his primary goals are to avoid any trouble with the Jews. He just doesn't want any trouble. He wants to keep the money flowing and make sure that everybody stays loyal to Caesar. So the heaviest charge levied against Jesus, as far as Pilate is concerned, is that he claims to be king. Now that's a direct opposition to the authority of Caesar. That's the charge that Pilate zeroes in on. And so that leads us to our cross-examination. Verse 3. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? What Pilate really wants to know is, Are you a revolutionary? Are you going to cause trouble? Is any of this true? Do you call yourself a king? Because if you call yourself a king, then Caesar's not going to be happy with that, and I'm going to have to do something. Now John's depiction of this whole scenario is a bit more complete. Let me read it for you. John 18, 33-38. So, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Has somebody planted this idea in your head? Or is this something that you've seen, Pilate? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Now that should fuse Pilate's concern right there. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to compete against Caesar. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Pilate would understand that. If he was really a king, his subjects would defend him. But my kingdom is not of this world, he says it twice. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world to bear witness to the truth. He's here to bring truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Luke's version is simpler than that, but it gets down to the crux of the matter. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers Pilate back in Luke, you have said so. And if if we put all of the gospel depictions together and do what we call a harmony of the gospels, fill in all the blanks with each other, what you get is Jesus saying to Pilate, I'm not here to make trouble for you. I'm here to be a bearer of the truth. I'm here to speak truth. Other people are making the trouble. And if you read in between the lines, you're saying, I'm not just king of the Jews. I'm king of everybody. My kingdom isn't here. It's in heaven where everything started. Pilate hears Jesus very clearly. And hands down his decision. Here's the conclusion of our trial. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Ouch. 
Now, in John's gospel, Pilate says those words right after saying what is truth. And what Pilate's trying to say to Jesus Christ, oh, nobody really knows what truth is. We think this is a modern idea, don't we? Yeah, the, the floating truth, the, the target that keeps on moving and keeps on changing. Pilate's saying, who knows what truth is? And even at it, he utters the most truthful statement ever known, made by any man. He says, I find no guilt in this man. He's the only one that have ever walked amongst us that was absolutely perfect. He's not guilty of anything. And Pilate utters the truth. And the Sanhedrin, they're not happy at all. This didn't go the way they wanted it to. Verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. They've taken Jesus to the higher authority, only to hear that he's not guilty. So they begin shouting, He's got the whole nation in a turmoil. You don't want this kind of trouble, Pilate. Next thing, somebody from Caesar is going to come and visit you because you can't control the situation. Now, do your job. So we see these, these three phases of this so-called trial. The charges, the cross-examine, and the conclusion. And, and there's, there's gold in here. Listen to this. The trial of Jesus and Peter's denials are a study in contrast. We see the contrast between the previous passage and this passage here. And the first thing we see is that a disciple fails. He fails spectacularly. Through lack of nerve, he's, he's unable to stand up and defend his teacher. The second thing is that the soldiers are coldly and arrogantly insulting the one who's about to die, who came to die for people just like them. Came to die for people just like us. People have thought they knew everything. People thought they had a handle on it. Thought they were good people and needed a savior. And the third thing we see in this is that leadership is make this calculated effort. I mean, every step is planned ahead of time. They're working in coordination with each other. This isn't just some random thing that's happening. They've got everybody together at the exactly right time of day. They probably woke Pilate up to, to and, and everything is moving towards making sure that Jesus is condemned. mother of all plots. And finally, through this whole thing, Jesus remains calm. He doesn't get upset. doesn't start throwing lightning bolts at anybody. doesn't smite anybody. You know how much I like that word. doesn't get angry. He doesn't even really defend himself. He just speaks truth. He's an example of obedience while suffering. The trial, the trial is a sham. It, it's a joke. But God is going to use this joke that these guys have put together to accomplish His will. Jesus' testimony is going to lead to His conviction because the claim is just too radical to believe. It's too dangerous to leave alone. That one man could be the Son of God. That one man's sacrifice could pay for all of our sins and all of our debts. And just as we've seen in every case where Jesus has made an appearance in the public in Luke, 
His presence demands a decision. What will I do about Jesus? It's too radical to to embrace and too dangerous to leave alone. And as readers of this, we're challenged to make that same decision. We haven't seen the end of the Gospel of Luke yet. We're familiar with it. We know what's going to happen. And even, even as we ponder those decisions we have to make and those truths that we have to learn, we find out that a disciple, brothers and sisters, a disciple can fail. He can drop the ball. He can stumble. He can get it all wrong. And later on, not too, too long from right here in Luke 23, we're going to find out that if that disciple who fails who didn't do the right thing, who did exactly the wrong thing, if he fails and repents, he's restored to fellowship. He's forgiven. God's grace is incredible. We found out that when the situation turns dire, we can buckle if we're not prepared for it. We can cave if we're not ready for it. If we think that our relationship with God is a bright and sunny pasture, as somebody once told me, that everything's going to go right. And we get blindsided by life. If we're not prepared for it, we can cave in. We can, we can lose it. Praise God. Even if we do, God's grace will cover us. Amen? But we need to be prepared. We'll be talking about that as we go into next year, being prepared. Finally, we see the soldiers. And we see how angry the world can be in reacting towards Jesus, in reacting towards the gospel. Cynicism dominates the picture there. We live in a cynical world, don't we? And day by day, the world is less and less eager to hear what we have to say. Through it all, we see God's plan moving steadfastly forward. And one of the great ironies of what we're seeing right now is that movement is actually orchestrated by the one that they're trying to put on trial. Everything they do plays into his hands. What an awesome, amazing, wonderful God we have that can take the mess that we make of our lives and do something beautiful with it. I mean, that's the biggest lesson we see here because this situation in Pilate's place is a mess. It's it's dominated by anger, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, all the things we're told to avoid. They're coming to the surface and they think they're driving the situation and what they're doing is they're driving it right into God's hands. It's absolutely incredible. So we have this judge who has a type of temporary authority trying to judge the judge that has all the authority. And we're left with the question of which judge do we want to stand before? 
because we will all be judged. There will be a day of accountability. But the scriptures tell us that those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be judged not unto condemnation, but unto glory. And those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be judged into condemnation and eternal fire. Which judge do you want to stand before? Pilate or the King of Kings? Now, perhaps the most startling thing that we would learn from this passage is that nothing should come as a surprise. The scriptures and Jesus Christ told anyone who was willing to listen what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. The only thing we ever have to address is do we believe him? Do we believe the scriptures? I heard three times last week, I heard you're going to retire. And I told you, it didn't matter what I said. All three people that I talked to, they don't, we haven't had these ongoing relationships. It just kind of came out of nowhere. I think maybe God was trying to tell me something. Amen. Yeah. But when I finally said, no, I'm not planning to retire. You need to hear. I'm not, I'm not planning to retire. I don't know what God has. He may take me home this afternoon. Pray for me. <laughs> okay? But I don't plan to retire. I told you a long time ago, I've been called to be a preacher. God has blessed me with a gift that just goes beyond my imagination. The privilege of standing in front of you on Sunday mornings for the last 20 years. Next year's 20 years. I, every Sunday, I just kind of pinch myself. And go, I can't believe I get to do this again. So I feel called to be a preacher. But I also feel called to warrant about fellowship. And if you'll have me, I'll be here until I go into his presence. I've told the elders, and Peter has promised me that he would, that when I stop making sense, they were going to have to drag me off stage. So I'm going to have to trust you <laughs> if that happens. But I have, I have no plans to move on. And, and if you hear that rumor, just tell them the truth and say, John says no. They won't believe you either. Uh, <laughs> but it's okay. And, you know, and, and what, what, I want, what I want you to carry away from this is that you might not necessarily have to trust me, but we have to trust the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the truth. And I'm here to tell you, I've said this before, you're going to hear it coming from me again, I I think bad times are coming for the church. I, I think we're going to be on hard times, and I think we're all going to be around to see it. Now, call it a leading, call it whatever. I pray that that's not the case, but I think it's happening. I think we're watching it roll out right now. And my job and my passion is to equip you with the truth of God's Word to navigate those hard times. So you're not going to come in here and hear a soft gospel. You're not going to come in here from either Scott or myself or Jimmy or whoever is speaking and hear some nice object lessons to be taught to you that you can take home. You're going to hear scripture. And in, in the middle of the pandemic, when everything was locked down and everybody, every other pastor I was talking to uh, was feeling the burden of having a flock they couldn't see. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearing guys weep and fall into depression and everything. 
I got charged up. Because I thought this is the way forward. Just keep doing what God has called you to do from the get-go. Preach his word and leave the rest up to him. So until you guys vote me out, you're stuck with me. And as long as you're stuck with me, you'll be stuck with the scriptures as well. I hope that's a blessing to you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your, your word. And Lord, we, we go beyond thanks and when we see how it weaves together, how this incredible book, 1,700 years in the making, 40 authors contributing to it, different languages, different cultures, how it tells one story from the beginning to the end. And we pray, Father, that you help us by the presence and the power of your Spirit to embrace those words, to incorporate them into our lives, Father. Let us be not just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. And whatever's coming down the pike, Father, we put our faith, we put our trust in you. You'll help us navigate those waters because of the great promise you've given us that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can snatch us from your hands. So while we toil away here on earth, doing the things you've called us to do, being messengers of the gospel, we look forward to that day when we can find the ultimate rest in you. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us online.